Well, good morning. I guess I'm on now. My, my name is Stuart Holland. I'm one of the elders here at, at Trinity. And um, this is red. So he's going to bring a video up for you. So Red, the dog that we rescued about a year ago, he's obviously got a lot of energy. Um, he's my running buddy. He's probably the most athletic dog we've ever had. Um, he's very smart as well. Uh, but he does have some issues. Um, he likes to chase cars, for example. So when I run with him, I have to keep him on a leash. He especially likes to chase loud, fast cars. So um, BJ knows what I'm talking about. And uh, his desire to chase cars is sometimes stronger than his desire to obey me. The reason I bring Red up is he's not trustworthy. I have to keep him on a short leash or he'll get himself in trouble. God is completely trustworthy and faithful. He not only has the desire to keep his promises, but he has the ability to do it. He is sovereign over all things, so there's nothing that can stop him from keeping his promises. In today's passage, we're going to learn more about the trustworthiness of God and how it impacts the gospel of grace. So our, our summer study this summer is the book of Galatians. So far we've learned that Paul, he wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia that he had planted on his first missionary journey. They had, were predominantly Gentile. Uh, they'd received faith in Christ by God's grace, but then they'd been challenged by these legalistic Jews to first become Jews before they could become Christians. Paul pointed out the heresy of, of this, of adding a works requirement to the gospel of grace. He, he bluntly stated that if keeping the law could make you right with God, then why in the world did Christ have to die? Paul even rebuked the Apostle Peter for his indirect support of this works requirement. So, if works are needed to complete our salvation, then Christ's sacrifice wasn't sufficient. That's the message that you're, you're saying. Paul is going to expand on his rebuke of, of this requiring obedience to the law for either salvation or sanctification in our passage this week. So I'll read the text first and then give you a chance to pray silently that God would prepare your heart to receive his word. Our text this morning is Galatians 3, uh, verses 10 through 18. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Please take a moment to pray silently for God's cleansing and that he would use our time in his word to transform you. Father, we we praise you for being a holy, righteous, eternal God. You're sovereign. As, As we mentioned, you're trustworthy. Father, we humbly come before you acknowledging that we fall short of your standard. We are in need of redemption. Your law reveals that We are under condemnation, under your curse for sin. But your word also reveals that you would send the Messiah, your son, to redeem us, to restore our relationship with you through faith in his sacrifice. Father, as we study your word this morning, I pray that it would not come back void, that it would accomplish what you have planned from it, that lives would be changed, that you would be glorified, that you would equip us to serve you in a way that honors you and accomplishes your perfect will. Father, I pray that you would take my words and and mold them into your message this morning that your people would be drawn closer to you and any that don't know you would would be drawn to Jesus Christ for salvation. We pray these things in the name of the risen one, our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So our passage this morning begins in, in verse 10 um, with Paul quoting from Deuteronomy 27. Um, Verse 10 states, um, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Deuteronomy 27, 26 states, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say amen. So Paul is clearly stating that righteousness by works requires obedience to every aspect of the law. Because we all sin, we all fall short of God's standard, this leaves those who rely upon obedience to the law as cursed. This curse, a curse is a divine judgment or condemnation. Now, this is consistent with what Paul wrote in Romans 6, where it states the wages of sin is death. Uh, rather than bringing redemption, the law only brings condemnation. Now, some people try to divide the law into the, okay, there's the moral laws, the civil laws, and then the ceremonial laws. And they'll say, well, the, the civil and ceremonial laws no longer apply. It's only the moral law that we got to worry about now. Well, even if it's only the moral law, we're still in trouble. Because if you go through the Ten Commandments, just, just those ten, we all fall short of probably every one of them in meaning, especially when we consider Christ's teaching on them. But Paul states that unless one abides by all the law, not just some of the law, they're cursed. So obedience to the law is a good thing, but it's not the basis for salvation. The next verse makes that really clear. Look at Galatians 3.11 says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. To be justified is to be made acceptable to God. And this verse shows that the only way to be justified or made right with God is through faith. Obedience to the law is always going to fall short because perfection is required. And we all fail to com completely obey the law. So what are you relying upon for your salvation? It's easy in our world to many think that, well, I'm in good standing with God because I'm better than, and you could fill in the blank. You know, many people think that, well, God's standard is just to be better than average or, or to at least be trying hard. Well, I, I, I'm really trying hard. Isn't that good enough? self righteousness will never achieve God's standard. We cannot earn salvation with our own works. It just doesn't work. We're never going to reach this standard. Paul was quoting from Habakkuk 22 verse 4 in this verse. He says, and I'll read that verse. It says, Behold, as for the impudent one, his soul is not right with him, but the righteous one will live by faith. See, Habakkuk was written 
just prior to the fall of Judah to the Babylonians. It was a judgment from God because of their idolatry. But there was a faithful remnant. And they were called to patiently wait for God to just, justly deal with the evil and accomplish his perfect plan. Paul's quote is a reminder that righteousness is always and will always be by faith. It's not by works. And most Jews have failed to, to realize this point. They continue to strive to establish or their relationship with God through obedience to the law, but it always is going to fall short. In Galatians 3, verse 12, Paul contrasts faith and the law. Verse 12 says, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Another translation of this verse is, The way of faith is very different from the way of the law which says that it's through obeying the law that a person has life. So the difference between the way of the law and the way of faith is very noteworthy. Uh, the way of the law strives for righteousness through works, while the way of faith seeks righteousness through grace. It's trusting that God is going to do what he said he would do through the Messiah. The way of the law is doomed to fail, because no one can fully obey. As I mentioned last week, if, you, if you're just trying to add works to grace, well, that's a problem because you're saying that the sacrifice of Christ wasn't sufficient. And the sufficiency of Christ is an essential belief. A pertinent point here is that God has not relaxed any of the righteous requirements of the law I mean, he's immutable. He's unchanging. His standard remains perfection. If you're going to achieve righteousness through obedience to the law, it's got to be perfection. Stepping down to verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The problem with the way of, of the law there is that it brings condemnation, not redemption. God's judgment for sin comes through the law. Our redemption comes through faith. It's trusting that Christ's death was for your sin. Paul is, is referencing a principle that's found in Deuteronomy 21. In this verse. So I'm going to begin reading with verse 22 in Deuteronomy 21. It says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God, and you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So how did Christ redeem us when he was crucified on the cross? Well, first of all, Christ lived a perfect life. He knew no sin. He achieved the righteousness 
that God required by obedience to the law. Therefore, when he was crucified, it wasn't for his sins. It was for my sins and our sins. He was our substitute. He took God's just judgment for sin so that we could be declared righteous, forgiven. His sacrifice is sufficient for the sins of all mankind, but it's only effective for those with genuine faith in him. You have to trust that that his death was for your sin. If you have questions about that, please see one of the church leaders. They would love to help you understand the gospel of grace better so that you can believe and you can receive that eternal life that God has offered. Paul reinforced that Christ offers salvation to all people in verse 14. It says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, the blessing of Abraham that he mentions in that verse, it's salvation. And he's saying it's available not to to just Jews, but to Gentiles as well. So that's all people. There are two benefits that you you receive by having faith in Jesus Christ. That first was salvation that he mentioned, the blessing of Abraham. Abraham was described as righteous by faith back in Genesis 15, 6. The second blessing is the promised Holy Spirit. All who trust in Christ for their redemption receive the indwelling Holy Spirit to live within them. Now the next section, the next four verses, mention covenants and promises quite a bit. So I want to mention a little about covenants, what they mean in the Bible. A covenant is agreement between two parties, to fulfill an action. Now, unlike a contract that we typically have, a covenant really doesn't have a time element to it. It's typically for eternity, at least until it's fulfilled. Now, biblical covenants, they can be with God and people. An example of that is in Genesis 12, God made a covenant with Abraham. Or it can be between two people. In Genesis 20, Abraham made a covenant with Abimelech. So it was between two people. Covenants can be unconditional. So God made a covenant with Noah, remember? I'll never flood, cover the earth with water again. That was unconditional. It wasn't based on our obedience or anything. But then there are covenants that are conditional. When God gave the law through Moses, he said, if you obey the law, I'll bless you. But if you disobey, you're going to be cursed. So some covenants are conditional. Now, 
covenants were ratified in a way that we would consider to be really unusual. They would take an animal and cut it in two and spread the two halves apart, and then the two parties would walk between the animals. And they're basically stating that if I don't fulfill my portion of this covenant, I want to be like this animal and slaughtered. An example of this is in Genesis 15. Um, God made a covenant with Abraham. I'm going to begin reading with verse 9. Um, and he's, he, God, said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Well, then down in verse 17, we see how they ratified this covenant. Beginning with verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So this smoking pot and flaming torch, they represented God passing between these animals that had been slaughtered. Abraham did not pass between those animals. This was an unconditional covenant. It was only God making the covenant. Let me go back to, to Galatians 3, and I'll begin reading with verse 15. It says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul appears to be addressing this the question that the Jews likely raised that, well, when God gave the law, didn't he rescind, didn't he break the covenant that he had made with Abraham? Well, if people, and Paul is saying that if people keep their covenants after they've been ratified, well, then God, who is perfectly faithful, he's certainly going to keep his covenants. Now, a human example of, of a covenant that is relatively permanent is a will. My, my father is 96 years old. He's got dementia. Uh, it's a terrible disease, but it's a deck that he's been dealt. Um, he executed his will over 30 years ago. And it was properly registered with Harris County. So this will is binding for his estate when he passes away. At this point, no one could change it. 
He couldn't change it because he's no longer a sound mind. Um, no one else could change it because it's his will. It's not their will. In verse 16, Paul recalls the promises that were made to Abraham and his offspring. I'm going to read from Genesis 22 where God directed Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And then he reminded, he made this covenant with Abraham after Abraham showed he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. This is beginning with verse 15 in Genesis 22. It says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn to care of the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So the word offspring can either be singular or plural. So in, in this, he references offspring saying that they'll be as numerous as the stars or sand. Well, that, that's obviously plural, that he's going to have multiple, basically countless offspring. But then there's the reference to offspring that they will bless. The blessing of all nations would come through the offspring of Abraham. Paul made it clear that was one person. It's singular. It's referring to Jesus Christ. He's the offspring of Abraham that would bless all nations on the earth. This is the spiritual blessing that Jesus provides for all who receive faith in him. It's faith for their redemption, that they can be declared righteous before God. In verse 17, Paul clearly states that the giving of the law didn't cancel this covenant. The promises given to Abraham of land descendants and a blessing to all nations are still valid. In verse 18, we, we clearly see that these promises, they're the consequence of grace and not of works. They're not based on our obedience to the law. You see, the law reveals our need for redemption. But it doesn't include a provision for redemption. Redemption comes by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So one additional point to make on these covenants, the covenant that God made with Abraham was unconditional. It was a promise that didn't require any action on Abraham's part. But later when God gave the law to Moses, it was conditional. You had to obey to be blessed, but if you disobeyed, you were cursed. I want to make another point about the law, and this is from Romans chapter 10. I'm going to read the first four verses of Romans chapter 10. 
And hopefully you'll see why I'm, I'm reading that. It says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That final verse is why I wanted to read this. See, it says Christ is the end of the law. He's saying that Christ brought an end to this law works principle of attempting to earn salvation. He fully established the principle that righteousness is by faith. It frees us from the pursuit of of trying to be righteous by obedience to the law. See, Christ lived a sinless life. He completely fulfilled the law in thought and in deed. And that allowed him to be the substitute for each of us. He could be the sacrifice for us to take the death that we deserved so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. All we have to do is trust in him, to trust in his finished work for our salvation. If we're trying to earn salvation with works, Isaiah told us what we look like. Isaiah 64, 6 states, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Other translations have a filthy rag. It's only through Christ that we're considered righteous. So what does it mean that Christ was our substitute who took God's wrath for sin on our behalf? So I I once heard a story that illustrates this real well, and I'll, I'll share with you this story. So there was a village that was ruled by a king. Uh, This village had a problem with theft. So they set up a kind of a trap to catch the thief. And they were successful. The thief was the king's mother. She was caught. She was brought before the king. For judgment. The judgment for theft in, in their village was, was 30 lashes. A woman of her age probably wouldn't survive the 30 lashes. After declaring her sentence of 30 lashes, the king stepped down from his throne his position as judge, and he voluntarily took the 30 lashes for his mother. He could have pardoned her as king. He could have done that, but that would have been unjust because she had been caught as a thief. He volunteered to be the substitute to take the penalty for his mother's crime because he loved his mother and he wanted to maintain justice as king. 
You see, Jesus Christ stepped down from his position within the Trinity. He took on human flesh so he could be the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. He did this out of obedience to the Father and love for mankind. In Philippians 2, uh, beginning with verse 5, it reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In John 15, verse 13, it states, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friend. Christ provided substitutionary atonement for all who trust in him for their salvation. He took the full wrath of God for our sin as our substitute, allowing us to be forgiven and declared righteous by God. In Mark 10, it reads in verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isaiah eloquently summarizes what Christ did for us. And this was prophetic. In Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ's death paid the ransom for our sin so that we could have a right relationship with God. It could be fully restored. So what are some lessons we've we've seen out of today's passage? First of all, God is completely trustworthy. He's unchanging. So when he makes a promise, he's going to faithfully keep that promise. How often do you praise God for his holy, faithful, and omnipotent character? We also saw the purpose of the law. It's to reveal our need for redemption. Christ provides the means for our redemption through his sacrifice, through his death on the cross. He confirmed that righteousness is achieved by grace 
through faith and not of works. He brought an end to this law-works principle for righteousness. And then finally we saw that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross provided substitutionary atonement for the sin of mankind. You see, he paid the full ransom for our sin so that we could be declared righteous. We should praise him for the love and grace that he showed us. We should honor him with our acts of service. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for keeping your covenants with mankind. You are omnipotent and faithful. So you are completely trustworthy. We thank you for graciously sending your Son to provide atonement for mankind. He was the substitute for us to take your wrath on our behalf. Your law revealed our need for redemption. It also revealed how our self-righteous works would leave us condemned. It leaves us without hope. But through the finished work of Jesus Christ, we have hope. It's not only for this life, but it's for eternal life with you. Reveal to us the opportunities to share this truth with those around us who need salvation from sin. Father, help them to recognize their need for a Savior and that Jesus Christ is the only way of redemption. Father, I pray that your word would transform each of us now so that we would glorify you with our lives. In the name of our gracious, risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.